Is it possible to view absolutely everything in the process of racing as directly relative to the process of living? Depends on your mindset. Hey, I'm Marty Schaefer, and this is Talk Yeti to Me by Yeti Cycles. On today's episode, we've got multidisciplinary world champion cyclist and Olympian, Jared Graves, interviewed by his longtime team manager, Damian Smith. Just wait until you hear what makes Jared tick. His is an approach that goes way beyond just positive thinking. It's like he has a 0% victim mindset. From how he looks at team dynamics to his bike setup, not to mention how he went through brain cancer. Jared is a guy who just doesn't take in what he's told. He analyzes everything, putting everything to work towards perfecting his craft. It's a journey into a champion mindset like none other. Let's dive into it. First off, Jared, welcome back to the tribe and welcome to the first episode of Talk Yeti to Me. Ah, good to be here, D. Just like old times. Thanks for the lovely intro. I try, I try. Well, let's get back to that uh, that sticker king, self-proclaimed sticker king. Where did that come from? What's the, what's the story behind that? Just boredom. You know, love, love arts and crafts, as I like to call it. And I think if you put a bit of thought into what you're doing and how your kit looks and whatever, you can come up with some pretty cool ideas and just make your stuff sort of stand out a bit. And, you know, as I'm sure you know, I'm not afraid to bust out the scissors and the stickers, sticker pack in the middle of an airport when we're waiting for a flight. So good way to kill some time. I do have to admit that uh, sometimes it looks really good. Sometimes it gets you in a little trouble there with some uh, sponsors. But When was that? When did it get me in trouble? I think I've had a few times where sponsor may have called and said, hey, we kind of like our graphics the way they are. Well, this is, uh, this is news to me anyway, so noted. Well, uh, let's get back on track. I mean, I had been with you for a while back in the, the forecross days that you were anti-walking. Uh, if the kitchen was too far away, you didn't want to go walk to put away your dishes. But I hear now you've been doing a little running. Is that what I hear? Oh. A lot of walking the dogs. I like how you word that, D. Like, I hear that you used to not like walking. Like, I think you were the number one biggest opponent to my lack of wanting to walk anything. So the track walking at EWS is over the years becoming a bit of a thing. You know, with the one practice run and all that has kind of got me a bit more used to walking. But I can honestly say... I was so sort of particular about training and recovery that for whatever reason, whenever I had to walk somewhere, it just used to make my legs feel like absolute garbage, like ban the track walk. What were your goals for 2020 and how has that changed now with the current situation? There's always like goals like every year, but I think one thing to kind of change for me is in 2014 when I happened to win the, the EWS overall, like my goal that year was you know, win, and that was it. And every time I had the goal, like with four cross back in the day and all that sort of stuff, the goals, you know, win, 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 win. And after, you know, a few years of having that sort of mentality, it wasn't really working for me. It certainly wasn't a sustainable mentality for enjoying the process of, you know, each race. And so I kind of just switched the, the focus more over the years to just trying to make, you know, every day just having a little, I'm going to do this today and do whatever you need to do with training or whatever needs to get done and just try and do it the best you can, really. And same with racing, like just one corner at a time, one stage at a time, one race at a time. And if you sort of prepare well and then, you know, race well, then the result and the goal will look after itself. So I kind of felt like I had or still feel like I have something to prove again after, you know, coming back from cancer. And I guess it's no, you know, no secret that I'm one of the older guys now. Like I don't feel like the old guy. I still feel the same as I did when I was 20. So... 
I don't feel like age is a factor as long as you got the motivation, still willing to push yourself and train hard, work hard, race well. So motivation was there and just wanted to get right back to the pointy end again, hopefully push some podiums and that sort of deal. So, but only time will tell. We'll see. Speaking of uh, the cancer, let's uh, let's talk about that there for a second. So you're you were never shut down from riding. The doctor encouraged you to ride as much as possible. Yeah, in in sort of recent years, I've found that as much physical activity as you can, like as you feel you can do during chemotherapy, is is a good thing. So sort of there was definitely definitely times when you didn't feel good and like there's just no way you were even going to get out of bed on some days, like just head in a bucket sort of thing and they're a bit rough but for the most part I felt pretty good and you know aerobic training like so actually training as such wasn't really ever going to happen because it just made you feel so beat down and tired and lethargic so on top of the chemo so it wasn't really a, a thing but so I sort of got back on the BMX again because it's not really a like aerobically strenuous thing like sure it's like like power and strength based but I seem to be doing just fine with that like I felt strong and but I just didn't have physical endurance, like just the chemo wouldn't allow for that. And as sort of the, the cycles went on, it just sort of builds up in your body. So I just sort of parked the mountain bike for a little while there. Basically, like I think I had surgery on it was the 22nd of September 2018. And basically they just, you know, to get to the brain, they take a chunk of your skull out. So then obviously it wasn't going to be a, a good idea for a little while to, to ride and risk crashing on your head when that bone was still sort of healing again. So they kind of said like it needs time to heal like any normal sort of bone break would. So then being the head, I wanted to give it a bit longer. So pretty much when the, you know, like I said, surgery was September 22, 2018. So I said, all right, October, November, December, that's three months. So I always sort of plan to slowly get riding again in the new year, which is pretty much how I did. I think by mid-January, I did like my first mountain bike ride again in 2019. But then that was there was chemo going on as well. So, yeah, it was a bit of a rough time, but just tried to do as much as I could for, you know, keep physically active and definitely good for the mind as well. It just takes, it, takes your mind off all the, you know, the other crap going on with cancer and, and whatnot, so... So after all your chemo was finished, what was that final appointment like when you got the news that you're cancer-free? What was that like? So the way we sort of did things was they thought because I was young and fit and strong and physically active that I could handle sort of the most aggressive form of chemo and, and all that sort of stuff, like treatment in general, basically. So they just attacked, you know, my, my cancer like I had terminal stage four and got all the same sort of you know the process that someone but my sort of prognosis was always pretty good and I think they they said they got all of it during um the surgery so well they never actually confirmed that they just said they got it all out and but then you still got to go through the chemo and all that just because they've proven that the follow-up radiation and chemo just gives you the, the best chance of um of long-term you know, remission, I guess. So it was worth going through the, you know, the six months of, of crap to, you know, give yourself the best long-term outcome, I guess. So it definitely wasn't fun, but I think, you know, it was worth it. Was it what would you say that there was the, the crutch of your the fight? Honestly, I think from the start, I was pretty positive about it. Like, you know, all the years of racing and training and all that definitely paid off with just the way you can apply what you've got coming up, you know, and 
being mentally strong about it all. I think that helped a ton. Like there was obviously days that, you know, some days were worse than others and you just get on a bit of a, go down a bit of a mental rabbit hole sort of thing. But that's when I knew I just needed to get out. And there were always the days when I was just in bed doing nothing. And that was always like the wake up call sort of thing. All right, you need to get outside and go for a ride. Even if you just go walk the dogs or just do something to get out of this mindset. So, but I guess I never kind of really thought that I wasn't like, this is the thing that's going to get me, so to speak. Like that was just the mindset I had from, I think I remember thinking that within 10 seconds of being told that I had a brain tumor. So I guess it probably didn't freak me out as much as, as it would for some people, but I just sort of decided from the first moment I was told that I was going to get through it. And, and I think that's a super important mindset to have. And it definitely didn't hurt that along the way that the doctors pretty much everything went best case, everything went super smooth and all the, you know, the tests and everything I had along the way went really well. And, but I think that the main sort of thing when my mindset sort of started turning around like a lot more for the better was probably in the last last half of you know the last three months of chemo so just when you you do start seeing the light at the end of the tunnel sort of thing and whereas early on i think you have the bad days because you're like oh crap this is you know this is going to take nine months before i can even think about getting back to a normal life again so that was kind of hard to to deal with at first and i definitely had some pretty rough days early on but yeah i think towards the end it got better and better even though i was feeling worse and worse as the as you know with each cycle i definitely felt a bit worse but I was mentally better because I just knew the end was coming and they, you know, I had my three monthly scans. So they'd already told me halfway through chemo that everything was clear. So, but then you still get a bit anxious, you know, for the foreseeable future. I still got to go and have scans every three months to just keep it in check. And because at that point, if something did come back, then it's early enough that it'd be pretty, you know, a lot easier to get on top of it again. So, did you always have in the back of your head, like, I'm going to race again? Was that like early on or was it just like, let's get through this and then start thinking about racing? When did uh, that mind frame change of like, I'm going to beat this and now I'm going to think about racing? Well, I think actually before surgery, I was definitely like, all right, you know, I'm, I'm definitely going to race again. I'll just have, this will be a good little break and come back stronger. But, um, you know, I had some little hiccups with surgery, like pretty much had to learn how to use my left hand again. The tumor's on the right side of my brain, which controls controls the left side of your body. So, but even even now, like coordination in my left hand isn't quite as good, I don't think, as it used to be. But then again, I'm right-handed and never actually tested it before. So impossible to tell really. Like on the bike, it's absolutely no issue whatsoever. I have no, no problem with strength or my, like my left hand. I think because I have to do like more strengthening exercise with for my left hand that I think maybe before, you know, my right arm was stronger than my left. And now I think they're probably pretty equal. So just lots of little hand therapy exercises that I was doing just to make sure that the brain's got to learn new pathways to get that coordination back and all that. So I just really, that was like the first step, I guess, was just um, getting on top of all the coordination, that sort of stuff again. But from the first ride, it was never an issue. And, but I think as chemo went on, I started feeling like tired and all that. And you're like, Oh man, maybe I won't be able to get back to normal. And, but then sure enough, like the day comes when you start feeling better and you start feeling normal again and you ride. And then as the, as the saying goes, you know, it's just like riding a bike. So got on the bike and just realized straight away that, okay, I can do this again. And then you really, really want to do it. So just a probably a point there maybe around early 2019, but definitely once the, the race season started up in 2019 and being stuck at home and seeing the races going on and knowing I couldn't be there was like, 
I wouldn't say it was hard, like because I knew I had other things that I needed to get on top of, but it was definitely very motivational to come back. Any of those uh, things and tips that you've kind of learned along the way to beat cancer? Is there anything that you still practice and follow to this day that's part of your daily regimen? It's definitely changed my diet. Like you can, there's so many different air quote cancer diet type things. So, I mean, the first one I tried was the, the keto diet and that absolutely, I don't think there's any way you could ride on that diet, like for what we need, you know, like basically it means no sugar whatsoever. And, and there's a lot of good research about that being an anti-cancer diet, but then being a sort of short, hard and, you know, high intensity, short burst power sport, that was never going to work for me. So I'm sure everyone or a lot of people have watched the Game Changers documentary on, on Netflix and watched that. And there's all these amazing claims about plant-based diets and all that. And actually my wife is still sticking to it, but I've definitely gone, I just call it meat light now. I still love a good steak, but I definitely, maybe only once every, geez, I think it's probably even been a month since I've had a, a steak now. So I think I found a really good balance in my diet actually. And I, I feel... I feel like that's working well for me and I'm happy doing it. The body feels good. So on the, uh, on the other side of that, did you, is there anything that you feel like you've learned from mountain biking and training to help you beat the cancer? I mean, is that something, any practices that you kind of implemented during your fight against that? Just the whole mindset of how you approach training and racing and just a good positive mindset. Like I know that the mind's a super powerful thing. So just being positive about it all and trying to be, like I said, proactive about learning things about what would help me in my situation and all that and, and applying it. So, But I think just mountain biking in general, and I've always said it like for, it's definitely taught me things that, you know, you carry with you for the rest of your life just because, you know, you have to be, you have to make some sacrifice. You have to be dedicated. You have to be willing to, you know, go to bed early, wake up early, do the training, do the work and, try not like everyone has their their weak moments but just try not to cut corners and do the right things along the way so i think that's like a just a mindset that helps you for life what about now after you're cleared and everything's good to go and anything that you feel like you've shifted priorities in your life to make some changes for the better i think like in the sort of the, the worst moments of it all like you really realize that i've had such a mentality over the years that your life, like, as it does at the time, like, you get so caught up in your own little world, your own bubble. But you really realize that life doesn't revolve around mountain biking. And I guess for a while there, probably in the middle of the season last year, in the in the height of chemo, I did kind of, I guess, lose a little bit of interest in even following some of the racing going on. Like, not so much EWS, but definitely wasn't really keeping tabs what was happening in downhill or cross country but because like normally you know i'd follow every discipline and see who's doing well and follow all the results because i'm just like still a bit of a fanboy like that you know like that's never really changed for me i like to know what's going on but just in the middle of my chemo just i really realized that you know shit you know bikes are awesome but if you don't live through this what's the point of you know what's the point of everything i've done with riding if i just end up dead you know like and that's kind of a pretty dark thought, but one of the ones I had at times, and on, on, only on my bad days again, but definitely a thought I had from time to time. So just sort of puts things into perspective, and I think I definitely still feel like that a bit now, like just enjoy it more. And and um, But it just so happens that, you know, training hard and racing is what makes me happy. So that sort of works well, like just to want to come back to racing and 
there's nothing I love more than being in my little my little training preparation bubble and ticking off little goals and knowing you're making improvements and getting faster and all that. So, well, that's what kind of brings me to my you know question on this is uh, I mean you're already a very accomplished rider and you've achieved so much in your racing career. What's bringing you back to racing? Like, what do you what are you looking to do? Um, yeah, like just combo of some of the things I just mentioned before. I guess like just always been a super competitive person. Feel like I've got some things to prove again and like not the young guy anymore. So I'm kind of almost have this thought of like doing it for the older guys, you know, like, and I think I'm getting a bit more momentum with some of the guys that are like my age, like they think it's, you know, cool that I'm still doing it maybe because I just know when I was a kid, like you see these guys retiring it, you know, in their early thirties and you just think, oh, you know, they're old, they're past it, you know, whatever. That's why they're retiring. But you realize that now their priorities just change a bit and maybe they've, you know, they feel like they've been there and done that and don't have the motivation to, to do it anymore and they want to have a family and get on with other things in their life but um i guess i, I still just feel super motivated and just yeah want to want to come back and you know i was sort of like guys like like pd and manar like especially like pd with you know finally won world champs and i think after that he was still going quick for a little while and then he sort of started slowly dipping off and then and then a lot of people are like, oh man, he should just retire. But then I started thinking, oh, it's super cool that he's like forty and still racing World Cups, and he sort of got that momentum back again. You know, like guys that just thought it was super cool that he was still so passionate about it, and and I definitely did too. I just had sort of a new, and I've always had huge respect for him, but probably even more that you know when he sort of kept going and just kept racing because he loved it. So that's sort of where I think I'm at now, like getting to that point where I just. I really just love it and I've got that motivation to, you know, push myself again. So, and now you're coming back to Yeti. So you're Yeti's first boomerang athlete. Also <laughs> was made aware that's a boomerang athlete is a term. So let's talk first about why you left. I mean, Richie uh, was kind of coming up at that same time. I mean, you're for years been the star writer and now you have somebody to challenge you. I mean, was that anything to do with it? You know, it was pretty funny because I think I read every comment under the sun of like people's personal opinions about why I was leaving and all this sort of stuff. And like Specialized wanted to sign Richie as well. So they wanted both of us. So he's always been my boy, you know, like still is like always loved having him as a teammate. And when he started killing it, like I was just nothing but happy for him, you know, I'm like more than happy to, if I had a good race myself, I'm more than happy to finish second behind him. So that was certainly not part of it but so what was it then for you i think like a big part was specialized was always a company that i i guess respected and, and admired they're doing some cool stuff you know always innovating different things people either love them or hate them it seems but always had a lot of respect for the company and when the opportunity came up sure money was a bit of a bit of a factor the what they were offering was was pretty hard to say no to so and i had a really strong feeling of um I just wanted to see what was it, what was out there sort of thing. Like I do feel like I would have had a bit of a regret if I would have just gone my whole career basically with Yeti and never experienced, got out of my comfort zone a little bit, so to speak, and experienced what else was out there and how different companies do things. And like I said to, you know, Conroy at the time, I think there was a little while there where we were kind of going back and forth and he definitely seemed pretty upset. But I just said to him at one point, like, you know, it's like your boy going off to college, like he's leaving mum and dad for now, but doesn't mean he doesn't love mum and dad any less. So, and we always talked about coming back. It was always, I think, on the table. So always being at the races and always, you know, staying in, in contact with, with each other. And 
and all that helped out a lot too. So, yeah. Do you feel like you uh, <laughs> learned a few things just uh, working with a different team, different company like that? I mean, what are some of the uh, the positive takeaways? Um, oh, it was definitely good to see how like a big company does things. Like, I feel like Yeti's always been really good with you know they're not the biggest company and they don't have the budget that specialized does but absolutely making every making the most of every dollar where specialized just it was cool to seeing like that oh we just want to try this so they just throw a bunch of money at something seeing if it, if it works or not because they can afford to do that sort of thing so there was definitely some pretty cool little little projects we got to be a part of and you know people ask me now do you have any regrets since you just you know left for four years and now you've come back to yeti and like I definitely don't have any regrets about what I did because I think I would have regretted it if I hadn't tried. And I think, you know, especially in 2016, I think every single component on my bike was different. There wasn't one, except for, I think, Renthal with bars and stems was the only carryover thing. So it was definitely a bit of a a learning curve there and an interesting time trying to adapt to completely different equipment. So... I think what's you know what's brought me back to Yeti is just that that feeling of family, and I was definitely missing that. And I loved our little group. You know, we specialised at the races. The team, you know, Curtis was an awesome teammate. Miranda Miller, super funny. Like everyone who knows Miranda just loves her. She's she's so funny. You know, Ben, I was a great manager. Kyle and Patty, they were awesome too. So definitely a good experience, but just didn't quite have that same sort of family atmosphere. Especially when you went to the factory at Morgan Hill, you know, like you're like, oh, geez, this place is massive, and so like you go into Yeti and like you know, they take Rocket for example, walk into walk into his office and just squirt him in the face with a water bottle, you know, like everyone always loves messing with Rocket. <laughs> I don't know why it's just a fun guy to mess. Oh, with. At least he can take it though too. He's pretty good about it. So just like you know, just all the all the employees there just always got along with them and go for the lunch rides and whatever, and just always a good time. So can't wait to sort of get back to that and one of the first things i thought of you know when you know flights were cancelled and races cancelled and international traveling not happening it was like geez you know this is you know i feel like i've been waiting to get back there for ages and got to wait a bit longer now so pretty shitty well this is uh where point in the podcast i'd like to uh test your memory <laughs> um you've always had an amazing memory yeah, results, figures, times. I, I swear that you could bust out the stats. I would, don't even need Google, uh, roots and rain when I have you around. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I want to kind of go through a, a little Yeti history with you. And oh, here we go. first of all, I want to kind of get a little bit of before, before you were Yeti, like uh, what were teams were you on? Who were you riding with? And what was your impression of the Yeti Factor team? Have you even heard of it in Australia? Believe it or not. <laughs> What sort of a question is that? Believe it or not, David, we're not we're not super duper isolated here. We do have the internet. We do get magazines. I've been I've been to Toowoomba. No, I think the internet just came there like in the last twenty years. Oh dear. You know, I think like growing up BMX was the family sport or one of the family sports or a super sporty family. Like I think at one point there I probably had about five different sports going on like oh i want to be a i want to be a cricket player i want to be a soccer player i want to be a basketballer i want to be a water skier water skiing was the other big family sport i guess bmx is probably always the main one but you could guarantee on any given weekend if we weren't racing bmx we're out water skiing so i think bmx was probably 
30 plus weekends a year and then every other weekend except for the coldest parts of winter water skiing for sure so i just i remember um i think my first memories of yeti were probably and i think i don't know if they were still riding for yeti at the time but had been in previous years was like Vories, missy probably miles rockwell this is completely honest my favorite color has always been turquoise so I think that's what drew me to Yeti initially was just seeing the, you know, the Turk and yellow bikes. They definitely like did something different. And um, then I guess later on, you know, Rennie was a huge influence for me just being, you know, junior world champ then got on Yeti. And at the time he was still living down South, but then he moved up to, you know, he's pretty close to me now, actually, like as far as where he lives. So, you know, he sort of moved up to Queensland and I think that was at the, the end of his time on Yeti anyway. So, but just, yeah, Rennie was pretty much... Rennie and Kavarik were definitely the two guys in Australia at the time that were just, you know, they were they were the man. How did it come about, you getting on the Yeti factory program? How did it happen for you? I guess going back to your previous question a bit too, I got my start with, you know, the, the guy that was undoubtedly the guy that had the biggest pull to get you on a team or get you started in Australia was Rob Eva, who's still with, you know, does stuff with SRAM now, so... Rob ran the, the GT Australia team and that was like the team to be on in Australia. So I sort of rocked up to some national rounds and, and did well and got on that program and Rob sort of looked after me. But then actually probably probably more John O'Taylor with uh, Orange after that that sort of got me my first international ride with Orange anyway with the old Madcaps team. That team became Iron Horse Madcaps the year after and that was with Rennie and Sam Hill and Bryn. So the thing that led to Yeti was... um. So in 2003 at Fort William, I had a big crash there on the first day of downhill practice and lacerated my kidney. It was four or five months recovery time after that, so that was the whole season. Basically got the call from Iron Horse saying that you're too much of an injury risk because I finished 2002 with a broken elbow as well when I crashed at World Champs in my race run and then got a call that they weren't going to re-sign me for 2003. So you know, being a teenager and going through that, you know, just, I don't know, I was just super angry. I remember being like so bitter about it. And even though I was still under contract, I ripped off all the stickers on my bike and went to the the Threadbow National Round and just being, I remember just like listening to just like death metal the whole way down, just like so angry and just, just thinking I needed to win that race and, and raced in a t-shirt just to like show people I had no ride and ended up winning the race and and got home and wasn't like such a standard thing to have internet everywhere you went back then, obviously in, in 2002 or three. So Because you were in Toowoomba, <laughs> didn't have it. <laughs> I knew that was coming. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> no, I just like, you know, got home, put the dial up on, loaded up the emails and I actually had six different offers just, you know, in my, in my inbox, just because I, you know, guys overseas, team managers saw that race and saw that I was unsponsored and, I guess looking back on it now, I did have a bit of, you know, new young guy hype behind me at the time. And Name some of those uh, teams that were uh, looking at you. I was talking to Intense, to Haro, obviously Yeti, um, Maxis, Turner. So what was it about Yeti well, that uh, finally was like, this is the team that I want to go with? Actually, that's a another sort of funny story, I guess. I actually had a contract the, the team I really wanted to go for just because the money at the time was, you know, I thought really good and it, it was a good, good, well-run program. At least it looked like it from the outside was the the Maxis team and they were on intense bikes and that was with them. Um, I think Kakaldi and I think Colin Bailey had just stopped racing at that point. So they had a spot open and 
and I had that contract ready to go and basically told him I was ready to sign and and all that. But then I just happened to, I think, Stickman, I was asking him, like, what did he think? Because, I don't know, we sort of always got along from early on, I guess. And at the time I was young and didn't really know too many people and just sort of all I knew about teams was what I could see from the outside looking in. So basically I remember Stickman said to me that he just thought I should go with Yeti because, like, Yeti, honestly, I loved the bikes and I loved the team and it was, you know, super enticing, but it wasn't one of the first choices, I guess, at the time. Just Is it because they weren't running turquoise back then because it was yellow uh, and black? It was, no, it was turquoise. But um, How was it? Okay. I really liked the DH9 because, like, you know, Rennie was just doing Rennie things on it and it just made, made the bike look super cool. But I think just what was being offered sort of wasn't the best at first and like good support and all that, but really no money in it or anything like that. So, but then I had those other good offers and I just happened like after Stickman's recommendation, he's like, Oh, I think you'd really fit in well at Yeti. And, and I know Rennie had been talking to Conroy and I think that helped as well. Just sort of getting me a bit more money and then sort of showed the, the Maxis offer to, to Conroy and he stepped up the money. And as soon as he stepped up the money a bit, it was kind of like almost felt like a no-brainer then. So, yeah, he probably went from being about maybe the third choice to just instantly number one overnight. So, not saying it was like money-driven, but because it was definitely I always loved the the idea of the company and the bikes look cool and the company look cool and but you still you know you need money to survive. So, and I, I definitely wanted something that you know would allow me to have enough that I could you know really eat well. And because in years previous it was literally doing the to sleep on the couch, living on two-minute noodles and that sort of deal. Like, you know, lots of ramen going on. So I just wanted to be, you know, get enough money that I could improve my diet and be happier, basically. And as soon as, you know, Conroy offered a bit more money and that was it, signed the contract, done. Well, I guess that's where I kind of really jump into the story there because I think uh, your first year on the uh, the program, Jill Kittner was your, your teammate there. Yeah, that first year was just uh, Ross Mylan, myself, Jill, and then Rowney and, and Trent Lowe on the XC side. So pretty cool team. It's definitely good to have um, two other Australians on the on the program as well. So yeah, living out at the Dana Ranch, that's where I got to know one D Smith. And we have a few <laughs> a few fun stories. I'm not sure if we should go into that. I was going to tell the, the KFC story. <laughs> what was the deal with Captain Morgan then? That's all I remember. It was some sort I of think deal. they were a, a sponsor somewhat of the, the Mountain States Cup, or maybe it was just a, we always had a lot of Captain Morgan around and a lot of Gatorade around. <laughs> yes, we did. And uh, and I guess a KFC bucket, So, which brings me to uh, you looking for more money so you can eat well. So it was KFC, I, I guess mean, that's what you felt was good. <laughs> I, can, I can honestly say I think we only did KFC maybe a couple times like at the end of the day you're still you're still young like kfc i used to think was absolutely delicious personally can't stand it now but it was definitely a treat back then and there was a kfc just down the road in slider so i think one day we came home with a bucket and then that night we just happened to get on the captain morgan and gatorade and eventually got thrown out of the driveway because we were being too loud and ended up by the side of the highway in a ditch and police come to check on us yes they did we were definitely keeping up everyone else on the ranch awake so off down to the front we went and for some reason jill was taking photos or i think it was jill 
and it's probably the first and only time I've seen Jill drunk too. But that was pretty funny. But um, some reason that the cops were driving by and they saw this flash going off and they thought that we're trying to like start a fire or doing something shady. So ended up anyway with um getting photos taken with all the police. So that was you know at what one o'clock in the morning. But basically, Damien somehow ended up with a KFC bucket on his head, and I thought it'd be fun to push him down a rocky embankment. And he ended up with. Did you actually have to get stitches in your head? Uh, I didn't get stitches, but I definitely needed some. And now to this day, I have a uh, very large scar on the top of my head. Yep, you're welcome. Thanks. <laughs> so teammates, we were talking about uh, some teammates there. So that first year, Rowney, Trent Lowe, Jill Kittner, Ross. You were two years with uh, Jill Kittner. BMX background as well. I mean, how did you guys get along as teammates? Which I think as teammates, me and Jill got along awesome. Like, because, you know... She was coming from BMX and I was sort of, I guess, getting into BMX more at that stage and taking four cross more seriously. And she was sort of racing less BMX, getting more into four cross. So we'd always do a bit of training together and that was fun and, and all that. So she was always, we always got along really well and she's pretty easy to get along with. So Ross was a bit of a, you know, we, we got along really well over the years, but at first all I knew of Ross was from the year before. And I just, and like, we laugh about it all the time, like years after this, but the first time I ever met Ross, he was sitting in the pits in 2002 at a Mountain States Cup at Snowmass. He was doing like hand exercises in the pits and I just had this instant image of like just this total meathead like because he was pretty much a meathead. Are, are you doing like curls like that? No, like, the, like what, lifting weights? Whatever the hand thing is like with the spring and like you just you just like clench your fist with it to like strengthen your, your forearms I guess so. He was just doing that in the pits between downhill runs, and I was just thinking, oh, my God, what a meathead. Did you ever beat Ross Mylan in a wrestling match? Definitely not. For those who know Ross, like he's a, he was definitely always a, a big, strong guy and a really good wrestler, and I used to love like you know pushing his buttons a bit and just trying to see if I could get a reaction out of him and usually end up in us wrestling, and you know maybe after a race you've had a couple of drinks and you think it would be a good idea to wrestle Ross and... I think every time he absolutely kicked my ass, so I never stood a chance. I think that's how you know that you're you're friends with Ross, because if you can't say that you found yourself on the wrong end of Ross Milan and the wrestling, then you don't know. He definitely didn't hold back either. There's no way he held back. Like we were talking about it the other day. I've definitely lost moments of my life from him making me pass out, putting me in some sort of choke hold, and then all of a sudden your whole world <laughs> just goes black for a while. Then you come to, and it's like 10, 15 seconds later. Thanks, Ross. Thumbs up. <laughs> I know Sharon Hughes is a key part of our team. When out of that relationship come along, he's um, been there for quite a while too. I know he'd, he'd worked for, for Chain Reaction at the Canberra World Cup in 2008 as a mechanic for them. No one had anything but good things to say about his work. So, you know, we just got along really well, and, and we just happened to be looking for a mechanic to you know, sub in, so to speak, for, for world champs, like a local guy, so you didn't have to fly someone internationally, which was expensive. So, Shawnee got the gig for, for world champs in Canberra in 2009 and did an absolute awesome job. And personally, I won, won the, the world title for four cross there and everything went really well. So, it was kind of a no-brainer to get him on as full-time for the next year we were looking for a, for a new mechanic. So, you know, Shawnee's, I've always called him like the mechanics mechanic, like, He's the sort of guy that there's there's no way someone out there is a better mechanic than him. Like 
there might be other guys that are as good as him, but there's no way they're better than him. So, you know, he's he's the man pretty much. I, I will 100% agree with all of that and uh, thankful to have him on board. I think uh, we should uh, jump into some, uh, some wrap-up questions here. I want to talk about the future for Jared Graves. What's a... Uh, What's your five-year plan looking like right now? If I just say that. Well, honestly, like as time's gone on, even from when I was young, you know, I, I don't think I've ever had a five-year plan. I think my mindset mentality has always been, I guess, be smart about your choices and, you know, take what's presented in front of you at the time and try to make the most of every opportunity. So there's times like if you would have told me in 2003 that in five years from now, you're going to be training for the BMX Olympics. I would have absolutely laughed at you. I thought there was would have been no chance in hell. So definitely don't have a five-year plan, but just stick with, with what's worked over the years. So I'm going to stick with that. I like it. I don't want to bring this up, but I have to. I feel like that uh, you got to acknowledge it. You were saying earlier that you're getting to that age in your career. How are you going to know when it's a... Uh... When it's time to throw in the towel, like what's that look like for you? Like, where's that going? Um, again, I think it just falls into the, I've always tried to have other things going on that aren't just purely racing. Like that's why I've always, and I've always enjoyed like, you know, taking the young guys under my wing sort of thing. Like I think started with like Sam Willoughby and with BMX and, um, you know, Richie, obviously like just trying to pass on what you've learned and help them, them along. And, and I just absolutely love it when you see them, learning from it and succeeding like it just makes me really happy to see them do well so i think that's that's something that will be in be in my future what do you look for when you really like kind of invest yourself into somebody helping them grow i think you just like you just get to know you just like i feel like i've got a bit of a maybe a, a radar for it like talent always is obvious i think when you see someone ride but then when you get to know them more that's when i sort of make an effort to maybe get to know them and then you learn more about their mental side and their personality and Sam Willoughby absolutely from day one we just personality wise we just clicked and we got along like best buddies from the very beginning you know like just knew he had that that mindset and unfortunately after his you know his crash leaving him in a wheelchair in 2016 but I mean everyone still calls him the goat of BMX like he's just no one's even gotten close to his records with BMX racing so you know, Richie was almost the exact same mold again. So love helping out the young guys. And if they got the the mindset for it and they want to really do well and push themselves and go all the way with the sport, then I'll do everything I can to try and help them. So I feel like that is a big part of the reason why you're coming back to Yeti is helping grow and look for those next upcoming riders. Yep, totally. There's, I mean, talent always sort of, rises to the top and you can see it and i think yeti's good at recognizing that as well and at the end of the day it's it's such a it's a cool job and and you know especially this day and age too now there's so many different aspects to it like we're just talking about mentoring the young guys product development i love all that sort of stuff just trying to find ways to do things a bit better and squeeze a bit more performance out of your bike and products and all that so i love that side of things and you know, another one of the things that led me back to Yeti is like they really appreciate your feedback and they use their riders for the feedback. And I think that's, you know, proofs in the pudding, so to speak, like um, just making good product and doing it on a far smaller budget than, than other companies have. So, you know, best bikes, best co-sponsors. I've always kind of seen you as a guy that 
has a really good feel of his bike and what's going on with it. And I kind of noticed that a lot of the younger kids kind of coming up, it's something that you develop and learn. Is that something that you feel like you've always had? Or is that something that obviously you've gotten better and better and it's developed? Is that something you can teach? It's definitely something that comes with experience. And, you know, I think some of the guys that are around my age have an even better sort of understanding for it because you know i did start on a hardtail with cantilever brakes and little 1.9 tires and that sort of deal like when you've been there and ridden the absolute extremes of what's bad and what's good like i think you do have a better feel for you know what's going to work and what doesn't and and um hopefully that's something that you know can continue to improve over the years and definitely something i want to do as racing sort of winds down i always kind of look at you as one that's pushing the limits to uh technology and the bike machine and always exploring uh, what lightest, uh, the best performance you can get out of your bike. Speaking of technology, let's, uh, let's get the best and worst questions. Oh, no. Uh, for, <laughs> yeah, let's go uh, best and worst bicycle model that you rode. Keep it real, Greg's. Keep it real. All right. Um, I think one thing that comes to mind is when I was on the GT team, my first bike was the Lobo and you could not get that bike to not have a rear tire buzz the swing arm unless you ran it at like a 16 inch bottom bracket height, which was just insane. So, and it wasn't even like a little buzz. We're talking like ripping knobs off the tires because it buzzes that hard. Just so people don't think I'm being biased here. I've got to mention one particular Yeti. The very first Yeti I actually had was the ASX and I think it did pretty well sales wise, but honestly, I only ever rode it at, at Sea Otter that very first year with Yeti, and I thought she was pretty horrendous at the time. Apologies, but that thing wasn't rad. Not compared to the DH9, at least, anyway, because like the DH9 always thought it was sick. I remember hearing about you in the DH9 having the, the rear was too stiff for you, and at the time they had four pinch bolts back there. And did you just ditch two of them and only did one pinch bolt on each side? Uh... That sounds familiar, actually. I, I don't. I think maybe it was it was a really funky axle system, and you had to like hold the the swing arm together while you did the pinch bolts up. And I think I may have been leaving some loose to try to get a bit of flex into the back end because stiffer isn't always better. And like, there's a certain amount of flex does give you more traction in certain situations. Because I just remember, you know, especially back then, courses tended to be like faster and rougher. And there's some big, you know, 70k an hour wide open turns at Leger at World Champs that year. I just remember my back end just felt so unbelievably chattery. Like I just could not get any grip out of the back end because the bike was just so stiff and just chattering everywhere. So, But apart from that, that thing was such a plow machine and I loved it for the most part. But my brother was racing go-karts at the time. And the way on the go-kart, you know, to get the cart to have more grip on certain tracks was to change the the thicknesses of the the axles so um obviously a, a thinner axle is going to flex more and give you certain grip in maybe in the tighter turns i don't know how it works exactly on a go-kart but just got me thinking about that and i thought you know definitely it was just so apparent that it needed to there needed to be some kind of flex in the back end so which moves us on to your uh, your favorite your the best i mean the first truly i guess custom bike i got was probably the the latest generation DJ frame, the hardtail. So that thing's always, you know, super sentimental to me. And I still got like four of them because I just could rarely bring myself to sell one of them. 
then I guess the next one, the 303, obviously the twin rail 303 was, that was a special one too, because that was a, probably the first Yeti that I had a lot to do with the development of. So then probably the, the SB6 was, you know, I still got a couple of those because they were pretty, uh, pretty special to me as well. All right. How about, uh, the best and worst bands and spectators? The Australian spectators are pretty, uh, pretty special. The Canberra World Champs was definitely a race I'll never forget. Not just because I won, but just like the noise was. You know, we had to. We were sitting in the gate, and they literally couldn't start the gate call because we just couldn't hear anything. That was pretty, pretty awesome race in '09. And when Petey won the downhill, it was just like, oh my god, everyone just went so stupid. Everyone was so happy for him. So yeah, that was a cool race. Let's uh, get a few more uh, best and worst out of you before we wrap this thing up. Why don't you give me uh, your best and worst competitors? <laughs> Definitely as far as four cross goes, um, Lopes was, you know, he was the guy to beat. So so would that be your your best competitor? Like the person that you enjoyed racing the most? or Oh, I don't think there's anyone that I didn't enjoy racing against. I'm just a competitive person. At the end of the day, you, you want to win everything you enter. So um I don't know. I remember a story about uh, we're actually in the gate in Forecross and putting... Uh, why don't you go ahead and finish that up? This is the, the Lopes story. I mean, we never know if to this day if he meant to do it on purpose or not, but it just so happened two gates in a row that in practice that he'd, he didn't like my slingshot. So he put his front wheel right against my back wheel. So as soon as I pulled off the gate, I'd run into his front wheel and then basically flip over the gate. And on the second time, I did flip the gate and because it happened the gate before I was just fuming so I threw my bike and just uh I was definitely ready to throw a punch and um Eric Carter came in and broke us up and sort of nothing really happened from there but I think that was the start of I guess at that point I was the up-and-coming guy and you know he was the guy to beat and that kind of made things even more competitive from there so but you know these days we get along no worries like we can have a talk and it's all good and Definitely one of the guys that, you know, made me improve myself. So got to say thanks for that. What about uh, teammates then? There has to be uh, some pretty hard lines on best teammate, uh, worst teammate. For the, for the most part, I've definitely been super lucky with teammates. Like the ones that come to mind, Justin Leo was, you know, awesome teammate. Just like such a good guy. Everyone likes that guy because, you know, there's no way you cannot like him. So him, Curtis was an unreal teammate too. Like we, you know, we've always gotten along from back in like 2004 and uh, Richie, but you never know if you're having an argument with Richie because he just doesn't talk. So <laughs> he just sort of, if he doesn't like a situation, he literally just stands up and walks away and that's the end of it. So, but we've always gotten along really well too. So on the not so favorite teammates, I think, sorry to say it, Duncan Riffle, but I think, you know, we were both young at the time when we were teammates and we were getting along really well the year before. And then, you know, I was I was living with him in Santa Barbara at his house, actually sharing his bedroom. So I'm not the, the cleanest, tidiest guy around and he was, I guess. So I think we just butted heads and we he was you know, he's always been a pretty opinionated guy and we didn't always share the same opinion. And then that kind of just made things snowball a bit more. And I think a lot of it was to do with, again, just we were young and but we definitely had a bit of a, a rough year together by the end of the year. Like we weren't really even talking to each other. So sorry, DRF. Well, you said grubby, uh, messy, which was uh, kind of rolls into that last one. Their nicknames, best and worst nicknames. I know that to me, you've always had grubby graves. 
I feel like you try to get out of it. Like uh, I feel like that's your best. Yeah, but is it your worst? I feel a bit. Uh, I feel a bit hard done by with it these days because you know that was my first year on Yeti when when Rowney gave me that nickname and it stuck. Because I was uh, let's 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 tell the story properly, shall we? So I was Sea Otter Classic, my first <laughs> ever race for Yeti, and I got all these like Yeti T-shirts, all my race kits. Troy Lee was big sponsor at the time. Got new helmets, all my shorts, gloves, everything. You know, like super excited. Just started ripping into all my new clothes to check everything out, just like kid on Christmas sort of deal. And you know how kids are at Christmas, like wrappers are going flowing everywhere, and they certainly don't think to clean up after themselves. And but Rowney just happened to to walk into my bedroom and saw these wrappers everywhere and clothes on the ground and just shit everywhere. And it's like, oh, grubby graves, and it just stuck from there. And still to this day, that's what I get called by him and pretty much everyone at Yeti. So I'll admit I'm not the tidiest person in the world, but I'm certainly not as messy as I used to be either. I can appreciate a nice, tidy room with some organization happening. If my surname wasn't Graves, starting with a G and just rolled nicely with Grubby in front of it, I definitely never would have got that nickname. So it's a bit harsh that, you know, here we are 17 years later or something and and I'm still copping that nickname. So come on, guys, come up with something new. I think there's a lot of stories to support Grubby Graves <laughs> that will just won't let it die yeah. one of my ones that kind of comes to mind is a a chicken carcass oh, that, I under a that bed wasn't me. i think that chicken carcass got you uh 86 <laughs> from the the conroy did, compound i swear to god that was not mine so there was four of us living in that barn at the time so i can understand that it was not a pleasant thing to find but well it's a whole new start you're our first boomerang <laughs> athlete and maybe we could uh throw that name out there and see if it will just not come back. It just, it, so. Honestly, though, it's at the point, though, where if I get called Jared at Yeti, it just seems weird. So I'm, I'm fine with it, I guess. So, Well, thanks, Grubby Graves. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I want to say thank you for uh, taking your time to talk Yeti to me. No worries. Thank you, D. Thanks for having me. Talk soon. We've all heard countless times before what a difference our outlook and attitude makes. But listen to Jared, it's a truth that lands at a whole other level. What a boss. I hope you tune into our next episode too. I'm going to be chatting with Joey Schusler, who's a filmmaker and Yeti adventurer. He has a lot to offer. I can't wait to get into it with you. I'm Marty Schaefer, and this has been Talk Yeti to Me by Yeti Cycles. And until next time, keep her pinned. Thank you.